Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. If you're listening or watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, as well as hitting the like button and the notification bell so you never miss a video. If you prefer audio format, search Gifted Performance on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting service and subscribe today. Make sure you also rate and review the podcast as that helps us out tremendously. Enjoy the podcast and stay gifted. Welcome back to another episode of the GPP, the Gifted Performance Podcast, where we give you the knowledge and practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. Paul, if I wasn't so goddamn good at doing the intro, all of that like old man like see now look at this this is on this is unbelievable all of this would be a distraction but luckily as a seasoned veteran of the podcast game i'm good to go at the bottom of my screen i am joined by a very close friend a good pal his name is jason holt jason how are you today i'm doing well i'm doing well sir things are going you know well oh wow well yeah, it's too much. We're going to have to cut some of that out. Put in some other words there. Re- stick to the fucking again? teleprompter, Jay. Stick to the teleprompter. That was a bad start. My screen, I've got Dominic Cusa, who is fresh out of a show. He's got glucose in his brain, and he's got things to say today. I'm feeling good. I feel normal again. Yay. And in the middle, the meat of this tasty little sandwich right here is a nice slice of Korean beef. <laughs> Polly Rocket. That nice, that nice Calbee. Yeah, dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. Delicious. Paul, how are you feeling, man? You doing it's good? Shit, man. Chronically in a panic mode. It's, it's not good, dude. I didn't even know we were doing this. So now I've like amplified the panic. So, yeah. It's good. It's all good, though. It's We're all going to be okay. Sympathetic drive PR today for Paul. All right. As always, you see the four of us, or you hear the four of us, if you don't have the honor of watching us on the YouTube, you know that a Q&A question, episode is going down. So we got four questions that we're going to get to today. Are we actually going to get to all of them? Who knows? We set goals, but sometimes the rambling, it goes for a little longer than anticipated. And and that's what you get around here. But let's start. Let's not waste any more time. A question from Mr. Juan Pineda at JSP underscore training. Uh, when do I know that I need to apply a resensitization phase to my training? Is it even necessary? Like the is it even necessary is like kind of telling on yourself that you don't think that it's necessary. But I'm interested to hear the opinion of these folks right here. Um, does someone want to step up and like define what a resensitization phase is? Let's say in the hypertrophy context. Paul, what's the idea behind a resensitization? Honestly, I think I, I need to know what the their definition of a resensitization phase is. Like, is it just a lower volume phase that um, maybe we're, yeah, lower volume, uh, maybe higher load phase where we're just trying to maintain? Or is it like, uh, we're just going to do kind of whatever, but it's definitely going to be lower volume, active rest, like... I think I think I think that's it. I think that that's the gist or the definition that I've heard is that it is a lower volume, higher intensity. Some people will describe it as like a strength block in the middle of an extended period of strictly hypertrophy training with the goal being to resensitize the pathways by which we grow muscle. Yeah. So I think the, is it even, it's all of this stuff is theoretical. I don't think there's any sort of research to show that this stuff is necessary or beneficial in the long term. It would also probably be very hard to do that research. Um, but do I think doing a resensitize, resensitization phase is going to hurt you? Probably not. Like you're either going to make just like, when it comes to hypertrophy, you're either making more gains or less gains when it comes to your programming, you know, 
And this is just going to be a time probably where you're not making um, your best gains. Uh, but we have sort of some literature to show that you could even take weeks off of training and over time not really miss a beat because um, like muscle memory, how long it takes to sort of um, – was it digress just sort of takes a while along with that muscle memory like you catch up really fast so um man there was more i had sort of on that here somebody else take over and i'll remember it let me let me stab at this from the research point of view so when we on the last episode of the podcast with the actually i don't know if it'll be the last episode when this one actually comes out on a previous episode of the podcast we sat down with the guys from data-driven strength and they said that the biggest research question that they had moving forward the next question that they had moving forward and wanted to see answered by the research was the issue of resensitization like is it actually a phenomenon that occurs because the idea isn't that you know, you take time all away from training or you back burner training and then you return and you're back to baseline. The theory is that by taking time away from your usual hypertrophy training, you get some of it, a somewhat of a slingshot effect as you get back into training. So I think that's the theory that most people hold is that by taking a low volume strength phase, I can slingshot my next hypertrophy phase and get more results. I remember now. So a couple That's of things. That's what I'm here for. A couple of things on that. Um, I used to occasionally do um, strength blocks like that, or I've worked towards it in a like linear block type manner, where you know um, for four to six weeks sets of ten, and eventually you know like months later I'm doing triples or something, right, uh, with lower total volume and stuff like that. So the problem with that, though, was that when I was like, OK, it's time to go straight back into sets of tens or whatever, I, I wasn't actually stronger. Like I, I was weaker for a while because I would just fatigue so fast in my workouts. I wasn't used to that kind of output. And so I would spend like the next six weeks of my life just trying to increase my work capacity so that I could attack those higher volume, higher rep workouts. So, I mean, there are probably some ways to work around that. Like instead of just going from triples to the hypertrophy rep ranges, building back up or whatever, but it, it didn't seem to be useful and, um, or, yeah, I mean, it, it just didn't really translate to where I, I was like, oh, for sure, now I'm stronger. Now I can work in the hypertrophy rep range with higher loads. And then, uh, shit, there was something else. I'm like ruining this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> there was something else. That's the here. role you serve. Huh? <laughs> Started recording. You actually, you mentioned something about like... The, the application of this for like the natural crowd, because I see the natural crowd as the ones that have really kind of latched onto this as like a principle that they hold or a value that they hold true to them. Thou must take resensitization phases. Um, so I'd like to hear you kind of expand upon that as to why you think it may be a good idea or why you may not think it or why you think it could be a, a bad idea. I'm going to start with I don't really think it's a great idea. I asked Jay, sir. Jay. Yeah, I, I was about to say, I think Jay was super excited to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> On this episode, Paul and Ryan just yell at each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, <clears throat> yeah, it does seem to come up more in the natural community. Uh, and sometimes <clears throat> a lot of what seems to be happening in the natural community is kind of looking for ways to continue or even make progress past a certain point. And sometimes I don't know if we're getting misconstrued as it being actual progress. I mean, we've all been there where it's like if we step away from hypertrophy training and go to more strength based, like Paul was saying, when you make that transition, it almost feels like you're making new progress. Like you're a noob again, because you're, you're training in a different, almost, uh, you're training different rep ranges. It's, it's, a, it, it's a different drive. Just everything's a little bit different. And I mean, I've done it before. I mean, when we were doing all sorts of wacky stuff, like, uh, five by fives and stuff like that. And then you would try to go to, like Paul said, go to rep or sets of 10 to 12. It just seems super hard. 
almost as if you had just started training. I think that may be interpreted as I'm making new progress, but I wonder if anybody looks at their training logs, if they're actually making progress or if they're just sort of starting all over again. Um, When I think about it from, I guess, mechanistically. So, I mean, we all are probably in the the understanding that muscle fibers are on a continuum. Um, So if you're just sort of detraining a portion of that muscle fiber, sort of its activation or its propensity to do one thing and kind of just decreasing that, then it's obviously needs to be retrained at some point in time. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah. I wonder if that's going to show up on the recording. If me and Paul having a conversation about his headphones is going to show up on the recording. I'm I'm really, I'm just typing. I I can go get my headphones from my car if you want. So now you guys have it. And for people who are listening on Spotify, extra super confused. But no, Jay, I think you bring up a good point. Is like, is your resensitization phase, are you just intentionally setting yourself back and then regaining that lost ground? So you feel like you're gaining really quick, but you're just regaining to a point that you would have already been at. I think you're just... uh... Like you're just sort of training a different system, basically, and like getting better, you know, improving sort of the uh, neural contribution to like training or whatever. But you're you're and then you're you're detraining sort of all the things related to work capacity and higher rep ranges and stuff. So like I I don't think you're going backwards at all in terms of hypertrophy. You're probably just maintaining or. I mean, you could still be growing, but probably, you know, if if your volume has gone really, like, really, really low, then you could, yeah, just be maintaining. I think there are some benefits built in there outside of the physiological as well, the psychological, you know, because hypertrophy training, even if you love it to your core, can get pretty goddamn boring after a while. So, you know, a block, a, a block of strength training or, you know, a block of endurance training, something like that can really kind of freshen things up. Um, I think I think to another one is like I think of bodybuilders like pro bodybuilders who used to take extended periods off from training. Like you hear stories about like Kevin Lavroni or like Ronnie Coleman after the Olympia each year taking like three months off. And I think a lot of people point to that and they say, oh, look, like right there, there's your there's your resensitization phase. But without getting into the like, hey, they were probably just taking three months off of drugs conversation like to keep themselves alive um i'm I'm not sure that that's really the best example of a resensitization phase dom are you going to take three months off of training you just competed no i start monday (laughs) (laughs) but i mean even after my first show when i was working with a very old school coach she told me like oh the best thing that you can do for your continued progress is to take like two to six weeks off of training completely after your show it sounds like insanity i think it's a bad decision if anything yeah i mean why do you think it's a bad decision okay i think well i guess like i wouldn't say like i'm in a resensitization period with training but like i'm keeping volume low coming back into training um you know body fat's coming back up my joints aren't the best still so i guess I guess you could say I'm kind of like in a maintenance phase of training where volume's at a, at an okay spot. I'm not pushing like crazy um, loads uh, like I was in my growth phase. I'm just trying to ease back into training over this next four weeks so that I can let body fat come back, let all that come back. But I think it's important because I feel like if you took four weeks off post-show, trying to come back, you're going to have the mentality of like, okay, I took a four week break. I, I'm up, I'm up 10 pounds. I could come back in a lot harder than you think you can. And you might actually, you might actually press the gas too fast in the beginning. to where like, by the time you get to week three, you're just like, you're already ready for a deload because you thought that four week break was 
uh, enough time to just start up again really hard. So I think training, I think you, I think you shouldn't take that long of a break uh, post show. Um, I guess it depends too, if you had some injuries during your prep and whatnot, but for me right now, I think easing back into training after, I mean, I, I've gone in the gym now, but I haven't done like any, I haven't recorded anything or I just kind of messed around and just, I tested out my movements I want to do on this next block, trained at like a five RIR just to move a, a bit. And, uh, and then now I'll start on Monday, everything. And I think that was probably the best way to approach it because I feel limber. I feel ready to go, but I'm not quite there yet. Like in terms of, you know, energy is still a little low. My hormones are still like, you know, trying to, homeostasis themselves and get back to normal so i think uh i think taking that long of a break sets you up kind of for failure if you think you're going to be able to just go 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 right away i got something to say on that real quick um i think another consideration for dom coming out of his show and doing a little bit less volume is just knowing that like he has more like anabolic support pillars coming back into play to where like his sleep is getting better just recovery is better you know eating more food and you know and at this time he's probably trying to blow like reduce stress and fatigue as well so like maybe he can get a little more out of a lower lower volume right now and not killing himself <laughs> but also i think like over the past like handful of years people have gotten really crazy with cycling volume and doing the incremental increases and so i think that it is good sometimes to cycle that volume back down because a lot of times i, I think a lot of people especially later on into their sort of bodybuilding endeavors when they get better at sort of noticing trends in the gym and how they feel and really paying attention to what numbers are doing you may find that you actually do uh better or just as well with a lot lower volume than you've worked with in the past yeah and I, I think that's part you bring up a really good point of like people pushing their volume super super high and they're they're psychologically burnt out or they're carrying some injuries with them and they're like oh i must need a resensitization phase and it's not that you need this like nebulous term that people have invented to sound fancy and confuse you it's just that you did things wrong in training had you <laughs> done them right in the first place you could have just kept doing correct training for longer and you wouldn't have fucked yourself up first of all how dare you say that anyone in the exercise science industry i guess you can call that would create a term so how dare you even I've, say that? i think i've heard let's let's all go around the bend and let's all name things that we've heard a resensitization phase called before i'll start maintenance phase <laughs> What did uh, primer, I say? It? Primer phase, <laughs> deload isn't, phase, isn't it, yeah. strength block, metabolite block. Shut the fuck up, block. <laughs> Just be like, yo, my training was dumb for a while because I did too much of it, and now I got to do less. And it's not called nothing. It's called the Ryan was fucking retarded phase. How about that? That's the new phase. I was stupid, and now I got to be less stupid. Church, I feel it. So, Jay, outside of things like psychological burnout or like maybe some nagging injuries that are lingering, do you see uh, any other benefits to whatever we want to call this thing, a resensitization phase? Um, I mean, what I was just thinking about is so when this pandemic hit or so-called pandemic I'm just kidding. Uh, when the <laughs> oh, pandemic, <laughs> well, there we go. There we go. Demonetized. Yeah, that's the end of that. Uh, so, <laughs> when the pandemic hit, and here in Florida, we, you know, everything shut down, and they shut down the gyms. And you know, I tried to do home workouts and do all that stuff, and that lasted for about six days. And then I just decided that I was going to do nothing at all. Um, so I did nothing for like three months, ate terribly had a beer a day. I, I just lived like an American. It was kind of my duty at the time. And so when I went back to the gym, I basically almost had to start off from scratch. Um, so I was doing far less volume 
And I think the benefit of that time, if we want to call it a recent, I guess that would possibly be a resensitization phase. That's a tough word to even say. Yeah, you, know, you couldn't just make it easier to fucking say? Like, let's just call it the new, new phase. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think during that time it was beneficial just because when I came back, I was really honed in when it came to technique because I kind of wanted to start from scratch. I wanted to make sure that I was doing things appropriately so I could keep myself safe, hit the appropriate, you know, the, the targeted muscle. And so I think it, that could be a benefit of a new, new phase or a resensitization phase. I'm going to start creating my own terms. Yes, do it. Damn, that's so hashtag influencer of you. <laughs> but I think that could be beneficial. If you want to call it a re, let's just call it a, <clears throat> A, a retooling phase is retooling. I think that's a word. Oh, nice. I'm writing a book right now. I'm going to put this, I'm going to jot this down. Uh, but it's, I think that could be, a good opportunity. It could be a good opportunity to kind of start from scratch, hone in on your technique, make sure that you're hitting the appropriate musculature as opposed to just doing wacky stuff. You kind of realize how much, how much volume you may actually need. Like we were just saying, I mean, if you're doing, 20, 30 sets of just biceps, bro, there's a good chance that you might not need 20 or 30 sets. And if you had to start from scratch, you may only need like four or five sets of biceps to put an inch on those 15 inches, my brother. I think this is a very cursory and like zoomed out practical view. Um, do you guys entertain the possibility that there are like some cellular mechanisms that could be you know, resensitized here. So like, are, is like the mTOR pathway, is that something that like gets tired over time? Like I'm M tired now. Like I'm just going to stop laying down proteins. Well, I think the, when you think about sort of like cellular processes for things like they're really good at regulating themselves. And so like if a system gets fatigued, like, yeah, like it's fatigued for a bit, but then it sort of fixes itself. It, it takes its own break, you know? Yeah. I think that's where a lot of people like, like, uh, like they rely on saying things like, uh, oh, you could burn out your cells or you can burn out these <laughs> things. Like, it ain't that easy, bro. <laughs> like, or people, I've heard people even say the shit about protein. Like, oh, man, what if I, like, need to resensitize some of my protein intake? Should I, like, eat low protein for a month and then go back to high protein? You know, I yeah, think I, I think it like just that. plays into, like, the, the neuroses of bodybuilders, you know? So I heard someone describe type 2 diabetes the other day as the pancreas gets tired. My pancreas got tired. I, I, that's one way to put it, I guess, but I don't think that's how it works. I respect that strange mod. Like, I feel like Osmosis Jones, the movie, did like a really disservice to like a big disservice to people. Like, and I think that people now think that like their cells are like Osmosis Jones and like their pancreas is like talking and it's like, I'm tired today. And then you got like red blood cells that are like hanging out with each other at the club. It's like, I, I'm petitioned to get Osmosis Jones removed from circulation for we'll call it hate speech the only world where that sort of would make sense to me and, and i'm not even sure if it would really play out this way but in theory like if somebody said it i'd be like well i don't know maybe is like if you were taking a drug that like forced an organ to work harder than it should all the time so I don't think in that scenario, I don't think that the organ itself would like fatigue or slow down. I think that your absorption of the drug would get down regulated. Like the body would just say, this drug is causing this. Let's down regulate absorption of that. So there's less in concentration or less in serum acting on that organ as opposed to the organ or the cells of that organ itself, whatever the receptors are for the drug down regulate their production. Yeah, so they're not getting like hammered all the time. Probably there'd be a rate limiting step. Yeah. Where, like you just don't get what you're trying to get. 
And that rate limiting step is something that is built into your biology. It's not something that you influence by doing three less sets of preacher curls for the next (laughs) month. Uh, That ain't how it works. All right. Juan, I hope we answered your question. We we really went all over the place. Tired pancreas, osmosis, Jones, drugs that make your organs work too hard. We really we we ran it there for you. So in advance, you're welcome. Our next question comes from one of our favorite question askers. What's his first name, Dom? Alex, you said Alex, Alex, Alex. So at a Calabat, Alex asks, do pump sets have a place in RIR training at the end of training a certain muscle group? So you've got a training session that is eight sets to two RIR for your chest. Um, I, I hop on the pec deck machine afterward and I do four pump sets. Is that something that you guys would program in? Why or why not? Are we talking about like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy? Is that what we're, are we touching on that? Is that? Oh, Dr. Cody Hahn's ears just perked up. He's like, somebody said my name. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first thing I think when I hear pump sets or pump, that's a, that's where I mean my brain goes. My, well, where does that, doesn't, that stem, doesn't that stem from like uh, metabolite accumulation signaling like hypertrophy to happen? Well, my my first thought is like if you're training for hypertrophy, like was was your pump not good at any point in your workout? Like, did you need it? Like, do you need to design your training better? Um, because I'm, I'm just, I feel like you should already have like a pretty good pump at, at points in your, in your training. Um, and I sort of look at like cell swelling and metabolites. Like, yes, you can train to sort of bias your training towards getting more of an effect towards cell swelling and metabolites. But I, I more so look at those things as a, uh, just something that happens in your training that like, isn't bad probably you know has there there is some reason to think that there is like some uh some benefit but your focus in your training really needs to be in designing your training in the best way possible to make progress in the future and to see progression whether that be load reps or some other type of overload over time and so yeah i don't I personally, I, I don't program things just to get a pump, you know, and if I were to use techniques that do lend themselves well towards uh, accumulating metabolites or, you know, cell swelling and things like that, usually there's another fundamental reason for that. Like they, those, those techniques tend to be better at uh, reducing time in the gym. And they tend to be, you know, somewhat low fatigue in other ways and cause low systemic fatigue and stuff like that versus doing it because I think it's better for hypertrophy. Yeah, my thought process is like I always see people post like doing a finisher, like why do you need a finisher? Your training prior to that should have been enough to where you shouldn't feel like you needed that. And then on top of that, I feel like, yeah, you do a finisher set, let's say. It's usually with like a light load, crazy high reps that just get to the point where you're feeling like a constant burn pump kind of thing. Now, in theory, it was that enough to actually stimulate you? Or did you fatigue faster before getting to that point? Did your cardio, was your cardiopulmonary a reason why you had stopped that finisher set? Because if it was, then you probably stopped yourself short of even getting to that, that stimulus threshold you needed to reach for it to be doing anything. So I always tell people like the most important thing is I feel like tension is way more important than like just focusing on your pump. I always tell people like you should feel a a pump, but if you don't, if you don't feel a pump, it doesn't mean you didn't work enough because your tension could have been there. Your, your time, you know, the force under the load could have been there. You could have done significant amount of damage like you wanted to, but the pump could be, the pump can also be related to electrolytes, hydration, so many other things that 
doesn't mean the training was a waste to where you think you need this finisher. Or I would even, just to add on to that, if you didn't get any pump in your training and, like, there's not a really good reason for that, like you're at the very end of a contest prep and you're digging super hard, no carb, for some reason you cut sodium or whatever, you're dehydrated. But, like, if you're not getting any pump from your training um, and you're working in, like, what we would consider hypertrophy rep ranges and stuff, then, like, that could mean that... So there's something wrong with your execution or there's something else wrong with your training that we need to fix. Yeah, like you might need to look at new movements. You might just not perform that movement right. Or you just like you're just not executing, like Paul said, correctly to where you're recruiting what you need to be recruiting. I think when I think about this stuff, I, especially when it comes to designing a training program, I think of metrics. So what can I keep track of and how can i keep track of your pump because that's going to be extremely subjective um i I, what am i going to measure your arm in the middle like after this i mean there's there's too many variables there to even determine whether or not there's any effect whatsoever so it, it probably maybe it has a place i don't know there isn't anything that's substantiated in the literature that says it does or not but from my standpoint, I, I want to gather as many metrics as possible. And I feel like that you're just basically just spending a lot of energy doing something that may not do anything at all. So what's the point of doing it at the end of the day? And then like you guys were saying, I mean, there's, there's so many other variables that can determine whether or not you actually get a pump. Like, are you warm? Like that's what, I mean, if it's, if it's really cold, then that's probably going to hinder your chance of getting a pump. So now it's warmer than it is before. Oh, now it must be the pump set. No, you're just warm this time. Um, Sodium, carbohydrates. There's just a number of things that determine whether or not you get it, whether or not, like you guys said, execution of an exercise. If, you know, if you're doing a curl and it looks like you're, you're rising from the dead every time you do a repetition, then your biceps are getting a pump that maybe it's the actual, it's the way you're executing the exercise as opposed to the pump set. Dude, I really like what you said about um, collecting data, because especially as coaches and just everybody in general who trains, that's all you kind of have is um, are your numbers, right? And are those numbers pushing forward in the direction that we want to? And a lot of times these pump set techniques, they are just overly aggressive and you know, just overly like brutal so that it's very hard to progress them over time, you know? And how do you know you're getting better when you're doing like all these drop sets or what, whatever pump technique you're doing, you know? And, you know, even just the, the local fatigue and burning sometimes, like Dom said, kind of stops you, may stop you a little earlier or something. Dom, Dom really nailed it. He said, when he said that tension is what we're looking for here, at the end of the day, tension is what's driving the bus. And a pump or a, the accumulation of metabolites can fatigue through those lower threshold motor units and allow you to access the higher threshold motor units. But at the end of the day, there are other ways to accomplish that without using finishers, pump sets, all that stuff. Like you can just load it in what Paul called the hypertrophy range at the appropriate RIR. And you're like, you're going to have a fucking pump. Like, I'm sorry, but if you're training in doing sets of eight, nine, 12, 14 ish, at one or two RIR, like you're going to have a pump after that. There, It won't be like the skin splitting front of men's health magazine pump that you're used to seeing, but there will be good blood flow to the area. And then Jay, Jay, you really nailed it as well. It was like the pump should be felt in the muscles that you're using. I genuinely heard a person say once these bicep curls really pump my traps. We, um, we, uh, we got a problem here. We have a problem. Uh, why, why are your traps feeling a pump from bicep curl? So yeah, it's a good metric to make sure that the muscle that you're supposed to be stimulating is getting stimulated. 
and can also be a good indicator of maybe that's not the best exercise for you. If you're doing bent over rows and all you can feel is your vertebrae slipping as you get the lower back pump from hell, okay, let's let's do some chest supported rows. Let's do some pull downs instead. Yeah, it's valuable feedback, but it's not something, it's not a necessary prerequisite to the hypertrophy process is what I would say. And also, I mean, I think it, it's interesting that he used the term, Alex used the term uh, RIR training. Um, this brings me back to when everybody was trying to sort out what the DUP was. Um, you know, we just have to understand that RIR isn't a training methodology. It's just a way to gauge intensity or to track overload. It's not really a training program or wrong jay wrong we have the rir and everybody else wants some of us what we've got going on here we've got paul and paul is rir he's not even a person anymore he just is rir all right alex you should be getting plenty pumped with your rir sets so talk with your coach because something is going awry um I'm going to actually skip to the last question because I think it segues nicely with the conversation that we just had. Um, another one from Juan. Juan, two questions in one episode. You should feel blessed. Uh, two questions JSP. in one episode. Oh, wow. Wow. This is going to be a one and only episode. One of a kind. <laughs> <laughs> That's a thumbnail. <laughs> uh question from Juan at JSP underscore training. He says when programming high intensity modalities I don't know if I'd call it that. Uh high intensity modalities such as drop sets, rest pauses, supersets. Uh what is the thought process when they are being put into a program? I think Paul um, has mentioned that he plans on doing an entire series in the mentoring lab about these exact things. So, Paul, give him a little give him a little zoomed out view, a little teaser of what they can expect when talking about. I don't know if I call these high intensity modalities. I think people call them what intensification methods. Something like that. Intensifiers. Intensifiers. That's it. Look at that. Another another term. Oh my God, I'm about to resensitize my intensifiers. <laughs> Honestly, I think the biggest thing for me when programming these things, it's literally um, if somebody just, you know, they tell me like, hey, this is a rough month for me. I can't be in the gym like I used to be and I need I need to get out faster um, or Maybe they told me, dude, I, I just really I'm burnt out on training my rear delts. Is there any way that we can spend less time doing that? And I'm like, yeah, let's do this so that you spend, you know, if we do the rest pauses or the mile rep stuff, you'll be done with your rear delts in like two minutes. Um, or uh, if somebody is at the end of a prep or something and they're just like beat and that you know most of their energy is going into uh maintaining a good workout put on their multi-joint lifts like hey let's mile rep you know your calves your hamstring curls and your leg extension so we, we can get out of there and you can still give those multi-joint lifts uh the uh quality yeah. training that you want to that's what i ended up doing towards the end like we had talked some things like some days I just couldn't like, I don't know. I was just ready to get out of there. So I would just myo rep like my last couple single joint things and just finish up and keep the RIR where it needed to be, but just, you know, do the set to RIR, take the little break, do it again to RIR, take a little break, do it again to RIR. Next yeah. done, next movement. I think it was really effective to get me out of the gym <clears throat> and timing wise. And then also, you know, you still feel it, like Paul was saying. Also, real quick, um, like, and, and I kind of touched on this, like somebody can't be in the gym as much, like each individual day has to be shorter. But also, if I have like a more serious client that's like, hey, um, I, I can only hit the gym three days a week. And they are a more serious client. And we do need to hit all the body parts. And 
you know, I for like most people doing more than like five or so movements, um, it just really beats on you and doing a lot more than that training quality really suffers. So in order to fit in all your body parts, we might use some of these techniques on some of your single joint stuff so that you're not in there for like two hours. Jason. <clears throat> yes. So yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I will, like the fellow said, I'll program this stuff with somebody sort of in a time crunch. It tends to work out pretty well. Um, I will use mile reps and such, especially for myself on the last week of a mesocycle, just because, you know, especially for things like calves, which now that kind of answers why maybe my calves suck. But um, I will use mile reps, say, for calves, just because at that point, I'm kind of just I might just be overtraining at that point. I'm like, I just want to get out of here. Like I've, I've had enough. Um, I will just go ahead and train to zero or one RIR in between those, you know, those breathing sets of three to five breaths between sets. Um, so I think it has its place there, but typically it is just a time thing. If you don't have the time to do it, then it makes sense. Um, I don't know supersets and stuff. It, 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 they all have their place. I just don't know. You know, if fatigue is hypothetically systemic um, and if it's a situation where I do some some rows, which can often be somewhat demanding, especially if they're not, you know, chest support or something like that. And then you put an exercise after that. I'm not sure if I can say that, you know, performance doesn't take a hit on the subsequent exercises. So I don't know if it has a place if you're trying to make actual progress. Um but sometimes if you don't have enough time, you just need to get something in at the end of the day. Yeah, dude. I want, All I right. just want to say you're not alone, dude. I only mile rep my calves because if I don't, I won't train them. <laughs> but Paul, but Paul, you have good calves, you know? Yes. So they're a benefit matter. aesthetically, but you didn't see him on the snowboard when his calves, his massive calves got instantly pumped. And he was like, guys, it's time that I go home now. <laughs> Papa needs to sit down. They're not good for anything. All right. Here goes here goes squad dad going out on a limb. I like to program this stuff. I like I like drop sets. You're a piece I like of shit. Right? Fuck yeah. I am. Um I like drop sets. I like compound sets. So same muscle group supersets. I don't love opposing muscle group um supersets the classical definition of a superset unless like you said um there's a time crunch so let me explain kind of how i feel about things like drop sets rest pause myo reps when i look at a set of 10 we'll say at 2 rir i see a good amount of what i consider ineffective volume ineffective reps if you will fatiguing through those low threshold motor units to then tap into the and i don't love the effective reps theory but i think there is some value there to tap into those effective reps at the tail end of a set so if i do that set of 10 and i get however many effective reps you think there are are at the end of the set i take a very brief rest to either drop the weight or do a rest pause slash myo rep set i proceed directly into the next set carrying that fatigue from the previous set any additional reps that i get on the tail end of that myo rep rest pause drop set whatever it is already tap into those high threshold motor units so i see it as a cheeky way to jam more effective reps into a single set that's kind of my thought process there the problem with that is you're Fuck still you getting, <laughs> you're still getting less effective work right because it's not that those earlier reps did nothing they did something paul no one said that <laughs> Don't mischaracterize my point. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Keep going. Uh, they still did something. And a lot of times when you do the mile rep and the rest pause stuff, you end up getting like three reps per set. You know what I mean? I think the only potential benefit there is that may, maybe, I don't know, like I, I would think that there's less just 
there'd be less fatigue overall because you're doing less reps, like in terms of workout to workout, maybe within that session, more fatigue, which could limit later volume on subsequent exercise, potentially um, from like the metabolite accumulation and all that. Yeah. So this is something that I use on one, maybe, maybe two exercises per body part within a workout. So the majority of it will just be straight sets. And then we throw in our finishers, baby. Some some single joint isolation rest pause work. And it's, you know, you put those at the the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I do like what you said about you you mentioned the supersets and i wasn't even thinking about this um in terms of potentially like maybe a client has low uh exercise selection availability or maybe their belt kind of weird um so where yeah you a workaround would be to you know do pullovers before a pulling exercise to maybe bring those lats to uh closer to the effective rep range earlier in a set or, um, you know, doing some sort of tricep work before pressing work. You know, if you wanted to bring the triceps closer to an effective rep range earlier in a set or where like maybe they're just built in a way where um, it would just really fatigue their shoulders or something else. Um, And then, but I will say, like, all, a lot of this stuff, it's it all can be useful. It's just sort of being really smart of, or be, implementing it in the best way possible. Like, even the opposing muscle group are doing supersets with multi-joint lifts. Um, you know, like, obviously, like Jay said, doing bent-over barbell rows or something. Like, yeah, you don't want to superset that with a bench press. But like supersetting it with a bicep or uh, a tricep extension probably isn't the worst thing or a lateral raise or something like that. Or if you're supersetting a lateral raise and a, a tricep extension. But there is always going to be some trade off relating to fatigue and your output and the quality of your training. I see just going back to what I originally said, I much much maligned the people on this podcast some love them some hate them uh mr lyle mcdonald he often talks about kind of those reps leading up to so let's say you're doing like a set of 15 those reps leading up to the quote-unquote effective reps as you know sure they're not doing nothing but they're more warming up fucking around get they're more the foreplay of the set they're less the penetration so my application of rest pause and my application of drop sets is to let's get the foreplay over with and let's penetrate for as long as we possibly can can you dig it Oh, I, I understand the theory. I just I, I don't know that it's it's necessarily better because when you lay the theory out, it sounds better. But I, I don't think in practice that it actually works out better. Gentlemen, ladies, comment below. What do you think is better? Polly foreplay rocket his theory or the penetration father? OK, I don't want that name. That name is we're putting that I let you cut that out. There will be none of that. All right. And that's as good of a segue onto the next question as possible. So Juan, there are some applications there. They do have some benefit. They probably shouldn't make up the meat and bones of your training. Guys, have you ever had an application from someone before that's like, I, I just I just only want to do intensifiers or you write them their program and they're like, but where's all the drop sets and the rest pause and the myo reps? Well, well, actually, um, to touch on that real quick, like, after Paul like taught me a lot about RIR programming and stuff. And then I slowly like started offering that to clients. They were all like, what the hell is this? There's no <laughs> drop sets. There's no super sets. There's no. And then like, I mean, now they all love it. But like in the beginning, they were all just like, am I even working out, bro? Like, <laughs> what the hell am I paying you for? <laughs> <laughs> like I could have half assed the workout on my own. <laughs> all right our last question it comes from at fab giselle she says what are your thoughts on vegan and or vegetarian bodybuilders fuck, fuck 
Yeah, hate them. Can't stand them. They're all bad people. Um, how about we rephrase this question a little bit? Um, can a vegan or a vegetarian diet work well for a bodybuilder? I say yes. Why do you say yes? I say yes on the terms of as long as we are getting enough protein and complete amino acid profiles. And I think there's no difference almost between the two. She's a vegan. I coach her and she uh, she's made unbelievable progress without any issues at all. You um, just have to say that because you're on camera. You're just not. No, dude, I have a lot of vegan. <laughs> you could have left that Giselle, out. you should hear what Dom says about you when we stop recording. It is unbelievable. <laughs> I've got the transcripts and I'll send them over to you. If you want to press charges, we can we can set that up as well. No, Dom's um, only nice. But uh, no, like I have other vegan clients, too, who have made some pretty solid progress, but We've ran into the issues of where, like, I've had to had them get like raw EAAs, just a fit protein um, content, and just because like total leucine content and some of their like main protein sources aren't the best, so we kind of have to supplement it through the day, just to make sure we're getting enough to you know stimulate those pathways and whatnot. But um, I, I think it's uh, a pretty solid. Uh, diet approach and i think people who don't think that are just way too close-minded and yeah. try to you know i like the elimination group kind of people like those kind of things like i think that's just too close-minded of an approach to overall nutrition um which you know me and, and me and gun show are working with a client right now she's a hundred percent plant-based vegan she's getting ready for an iron man and her training has been progressing like crazy and all we do is she has one she has one drink of amino acids a day, but the rest of it's all whole food. I think that that stigma or that dogma has really lasted for quite some time. That old school, like uber, uber high protein bodybuilding dieting. I think it's from Jay's era, the 1940s, where they really where they really push that stuff hard. Um but no, I mean, I just recently watched an episode of Revive Stronger with Eric Trexler where they talked about it. And I think as we see more and more of the research start to come out, it's like, oh, maybe we can get away with a little lower. Pro oh, maybe we can get away with a little lower. And those numbers are starting to slowly move down. Let me let me know if you guys have seen this problem before. But the vegans that I've worked with, the only issues in contest prep or in fat loss dieting that I run into is that a lot of vegan like vegan products are extremely high in carbohydrate and extremely high in fat. So you get these yeah. like protein patties that have like. 20 grams of protein, but they've also got 12 grams of fat and 30 grams of carbs. Yeah, I ran into, I, I run into that with them as well. Um, but like there, there's some good options now, like um, like meatless crumbles and stuff. They're pretty low. They're pretty <laughs> low. Uh, so fat. They're pretty low fat. They have a good amount of protein in them. Um, the, the vegan the vegan substitute foods have really came a long way the past couple of years. Oh yeah. Uh, from what they were in the beginning, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Even some of these companies making these protein powders. Now they actually taste pretty good. They add a little amino acids just on the back end, just to like, give them a little bit of a pump. Um, cause it's all pea protein and rice protein. Uh, but like there's some pretty good, uh, vegan, like protein powders out now and stuff. So I think it's pretty solid for them now. Meatless chicken nuggets. <laughs> nuggets. I have a question for you guys because I, I haven't coached many vegans. But um, do you guys feel like a lot of your vegans tend to have very high caloric needs? Like beyond no. what you would normally expect? No. Not no, really, not no. really. All right, fuck no. that question. Let's move on. <laughs> I mean, that could be like uh, <clears throat> the vegans that I know tend to be just be high output people in general. It's a lifestyle thing. Yeah, it's they follow like, a healthy lifestyle for sure. Yeah, I'm going to go do yoga in the yard and I'm going to walk my dog through the mountains for three hours. It's yeah, like dude, a very. So, 
Because I think it takes like a certain mindset to pursue like the vegan or vegetarian lifestyle. And that certain mindset is very health oriented where the rest of us meat eaters are just like, yeah, throw some chicken sausage on top of rice, put a bunch of ketchup on it, blend it up and I'll just drink that. And I'm not and I'm going to get 800 steps today. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, back in the back in the 50s and 60s, when I first got started in coaching, um, you know, I would meet a vegetarian or a vegan and I would always they'd say, you know, can I reach my goal as a vegetarian or vegan? I would say it's you can, but it's going to be difficult because there was like a lot of homework involved. You know, you had to, you know, find complementary proteins and it's like, oh, you had to eat rice and beans. You had to mix all these things together. And now, like you said, there's so much stuff on the market to kind of help them reach uh, their protein requirements. I mean, my landlord, who was also my wife, um, she also, she was a vegetarian, but, but before she competed, the one time that she competed and then won everything, she was a vegetarian before that and she was, you know, a yogi. So she had to make that transition. That was part of that conversation. Like, Hey, we can get you there, but there's going to have to be a lot of work that's involved. And now, I mean, she's slipped me. That sounds weird. She's slipped me like some of those crumbles in some, like, uh, I think it was like some lasagna or something like that. I had no idea. The time just changed. You weren't mad at that? Like, she basically drugged you without you knowing, dude. I mean, that's actually probably... That kind of deceit? Yeah, I mean, that's that's common around here. You know, the deceit in my house. So I'm kind of used to it. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to find it. So... There was a video I used to show to my students when we were talking about kind of like the advancement of food science. And it's a company that's making like test tube chicken breasts where they take where they take like a feather from a chicken and they like break like they take it down to the jeans and then they create like a chicken breast out of it. Hmm. So I God damn it, I can't remember the name of it. So I'm Googling things right now and I look like a goddamn fool over here. I'm like genetically I, uh, modified chicken breast, test tube chicken breast, I saw, chicken breast from a feather. I saw like a Facebook video, like just crazy shit that pops up on your Facebook feed where they like made beef out of like poop or something. Have you guys seen <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, I saw that. Yes. So my question is, is stuff like that vegan? So like if I take a feather, take it down to it's like just so it's just cells and then I rearrange the cells, some food scientist is going to watch this and be like this fucking moron. But I turn that into a chicken breast and then I make chicken nuggets out of it. Is that vegan? It wouldn't no. be right because it's still animal, animal product. product. There's still an but animal. No, it would probably be okay for a vegetarian though, right? Vegetarian because no, no animal was harmed. Hopefully, if you're not just ripping chicken feathers out of chickens and shit. So, <laughs> this was one that they like waited for the feather to fall off, and then they like turned it into chicken nuggets, and then they had the people that worked at the That's factory. That's what they tell you, eat, but they're just eat the nuggets, the fucking chickens, dude. Eat the nuggets <laughs> in front of the chicken that the feather came from, and I'm like, this is some weird, like borderline chicken fetish domination kind of thing. And I like science, but I don't know if I appreciate this. Yeah. I'm going to think as soon as we hang, as soon as we stop the recording, I'm going to think of what the name of the company is. Balls. They just had an IPO and they were like, it was ridiculous. Was it beyond me? It wasn't beyond. I don't know. Was it kind? I don't know. I'll find it. Are Guys, we if you doing, know are we just doing this shit because we can? We've reached like that point of like humanity or like are we like does somebody up in the high up know that we're just kind of fucked and we need to figure something out? I don't know. I think every day that we live, we stray further from God and he <laughs> frowns down upon us. And he's like, I gave these motherfuckers an inch and they took a hundred thousand miles and one day he will smite us for it but not us not us good folks here at gifted performance who live to honor our lord and savior Polly yeah, because we eat animals that have just like been through shit 
like the way God intended. Some shit. I always think about that Fairlife stuff when everyone was all mad at Fairlife because there was like videos of them like beating up cows and then everyone decided that they didn't care. The truth is that none of you even care. But nonetheless, we move on. I think that's it for our questions today. Do you guys have anything you want to circle back to mention before we send this thing on its way? The uh, views expressed by any of the coaches are their own and do not represent the uh, views of Gifted Performance as a whole. Uh, please do not sue us. Please send all complaints to Thomas Butler. His um, address will be in the bio. Uh, now that you say that, like, I just want to say I say shit I don't mean all the time. Like, all the time. So... We live in such a terrible world where when you're sarcastic, people can't just be like, oh, he said something insane. He must be being sarcastic. They're like, oh, wow. Paul is actually out here shaking chickens until their feathers fall off. <laughs> no chickens were shooken in the making of this video. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, the usual YouTube things. We will see you on the next one. As always, stay gifted and we love you. Check the sign. Bye. Bye.